Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So again, you guys, we're super happy you're here. Welcome to our Zoom event tonight. We're just thrilled. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to introduce our very first guest, Deborah Lott, and she'll be reading from her book, Don't Go Crazy Without Me. All right, you guys, at home, wherever you are, put your hands together for Deborah Lott. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. I see a lot of old friends and new friends in the audience. Um, I'm, the section I'm going to read from is a chapter called Migraine. So what's happening in this chapter is that I'm about eight. My brother, Paul, is about 12. Um, and my mother has gone off to the bedroom with a bad migraine headache. And my father is in charge of making us lunch. In the kitchen, my father stared into the refrigerator for a few minutes, then concluded that everything in it would require planning and cooking. And my father neither planned nor cooked. He opened the pantry doors and perused the canned goods. While popped on belly. Paul and I want spaghetti, I said, Franco-American. Anything else? My father would never say that certain foods did not go with others, or that two cans were enough when three might be better. Hey, we can have our own Las Vegas buffet, he said. He took out cans of tamales and sardines. We'll have a little orgy of flavors. He rolled up his shirt sleeves, turned the kitchen faucet on full force, and immersed his hands and arms and a current of steaming hot water. Then he poured detergent on them and rubbed them together till suds emerged and cast off soap bubbles floated in the air. Pretending to be a surgeon, he held his hands up, cleared his throat theatrically and declaimed, Paul, fresh towel, please. We all laughed. Yes, doctor, Paul answered, falling into his part. He handed my father a dish towel, touching only its edges understanding that fresh meant unsullied by human hands. My father wiped his hands and let the towel drop to his feet. All right, ready for surgery, he said. He took the cans to the sink and blasted them with hot water, spraying the curtains and walls in the process. Stop it, Paul said, you're getting everything wet. Ira lifted the cans up on the counter for inspection, turning each from side to side checking the seams for bulges. Even a tiny dent in a seam signaled danger. Signs of rust rendered a can unusable. He hesitated over the can of tamales and then thrust it beside his eyes. 
Paul, is it my imagination or is that seam bulging ever so slightly? Hmm, Paul said, examining it methodically. I think it's just the way the light is reflecting off it, he said. I could go get my magnifying glass if you want. Yeah, my father concluded. It was time for the most critical test. My father placed his thumb on the top of the can of tamales and pushed down against, if the top went up and down, the can was no longer airtight and poisonous gases had invaded it. In my father's universe, botulism was not a rarity. Every can was likely to harbor it. We must be ever vigilant against this tasteless, ubiquitous assassin. If I were to eat food from a defective can, if I even tasted it, I knew I would die. But I wondered what would happen if I only smelled it or touched it or breathed the air too close to it. When I walked by the shelf of cans, I held my breath. What if the botulism germs could travel from inside the can to inside my body? My father pushed the lid down again and it seemed to give just a little. He put the can aside. Paul, what do you think? This was another side of my father's relationship with my brother. When he wasn't yelling at him or blaming him, he was calling on his intelligence and technical expertise. Paul looked uncertain. Well, if in doubt, let's get another, my father said, returning to the cupboard and throwing the unopened can into the trash. It hit with a loud thud. Whoops, Paul said. We all laughed again. Paul took the replacement can from my father's hands. He held it very close to his eyes and twisted it slowly. Once, twice, three revolutions. This one is patent, he said. Very good, my father answered, taking the can and examining it for himself. You are a superb surgical assistant. And then my father smiled and cocked his head, lost in self-scrutiny. In the midst of this can-opening compulsion, he realized its absurdity. You know, Freud would consider this highly neurotic behavior, my father said. But even if he did not really believe that botulism contaminated our food, my father felt helpless against his need to perform the ritual that would confer a magical form of insurance. By pronouncing botulism's name in our kitchen, we would not be taken unawares. My father possessed no physical prowess. As the man of the family, he could only perform these sacred rituals to guard us. Of course, I had not yet probed the emotional nuances of my father's declarations. I was a literalist, a true believer. If my father said there could be botulism in the food, I did not doubt him. Even as I was laughing along, I was also terrified. My father took a can opener and held it poised over the can. All three of us crowded in, lowered our heads, and held our breath. Shh, he said. As the prongs of the opener punctured the lid of the can, the pfft, the sound of air rushing into the can, the sound that at least temporarily released us from the impending disaster that always hung over family. When the can puffed, the word was both a noun and a verb. We took a breath and sighed in unison. But even though I'd heard it with my own ears, I did not trust myself. Daddy, did you hear the can puff? I asked him. Are you sure? Are you sure you're sure? Tell me you heard it. Tell me. I'm sure, he said. Paul, tell her you heard it too. 
Paul, who read science magazines and studied biology, had begun to question the logic of the ritual. Actually, Paul said, botulism is an anaerobe that doesn't need air to live. If the can puffs, that only proves there's no air inside it. No, I whimpered and whined. Daddy, Paul says we can still die of botulism. Paul, why are you starting with me when we're about to have a nice lunch? Are you trying to upset her? Reassure your sister. Well, at least we won't get tomain. That's aerobic and much more common, Paul said. Once my father had heard the can puffed, he felt free to eat its contents with glutinous abandon. Once I began to think about botulism and the food, I could not stop thinking about it. In the hours of afterward, I would imagine the botulism area, translucent spiders making their way up through my bloodstream. Then I would feel dizzy and sick, convincedism had evaded even my father's vigilance and made its treacherous way to my brain. I'm afraid I'm dying of botulism, I would say. You don't have anything but way too vivid an imagination, my mother would respond. My father would look at me quizzically, disavowing my behavior as if it had nothing to do with anything he might have said or done. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Deborah. That was beautiful. And now you guys, we're going to introduce, I'll introduce uh, Paul Lasicki. He'll be reading from his book later. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Christine. That was wonderful, Deborah. I loved hearing that passage. Um, so Later is a book that's um, set in Provincetown, Massachusetts. It's a coming of age story set at a time in which that town was a refuge for people with HIV and AIDS. People came from all over the country to Provincetown to um, just live out their time um, in, in, in a sense of safety and community. And it's simultaneously the story of um, a town and how its inhabitants kept each other lifted at a point when ongoingness wasn't guaranteed. So I'm just going to read um, an abbreviated form of the first two pages, or the first few pages, I should say. We're not in Provincetown here, we're on the way. That's helpful to know. We're out on the driveway, my mother and I, leaning against my little red car. September 30th, it's the first morning in months when it's possible to stand outside and not be wrecked by the heat. 1,400 miles to go, 21 hours, a stop in Beaufort, South Carolina, another in White Marsh, Maryland. We'd known this day was coming since May 1st when the writing coordinator phoned to tell me I'd been offered the fellowship, a seven-month residency in Provincetown. We've had plenty of time to take in the good news, but the day of my departure still seems to come out of nowhere. It is bad timing, but isn't it always? The good news flattens us, as if we've both come down with the flu, passed it between us on the coolest, driest morning since evening. I, I'm sorry about this, I could take another drink. My mother looks back at the house, the tile room, Roof, the window, the date palms sprawling over the tight pineapple shaped trunk. The lawn glistens. Sprinkler heads relax after hissing out water. She has 
probably telling herself it's the house she'd always wanted, the house she'd invoked in a subversive challenge to my father. When you see me lying in the casket, do you want to say, I never bought her that house? So we bought her the house, and to punish her, holds on to the New Jersey house, lives there alone amid a slop of bills, newspapers, and out-of-date engineering books, and comes down for a 10-day stretch only every six weeks. She rubs her hands, arthritis twisting her forefinger, which she occasionally shows me just so she has a witness. I've been back only eight months since grad school, but it's also been a lifetime, as if I'd never left home and known what it is to have an adult life. She won't let me know how much she loves me, won't say how much she's going to miss having someone to talk to, but instead channels those feelings into lists, asking me if I packed a razor, toothbrush, deodorant, contact lens solution, contact lens case, comb, dental floss, Q-tips, band-aids, blunt tip scissors, all the items so easy to pick up at a chain. She's driving me nuts, knows she is, but can't stop. Terrified of silence, she's lost her famous ability to laugh and listen. Not so long ago, on a trip to Morrison's cafeteria, she talked incessantly for the full 20-minute drive. I blew up and told her it was wrong to keep a running monologue, selfish not to leave any space for my response. Her face went red, as if I'd seen right into her liver and heart. She knew what I saw, someone who had lost her friends, someone who told them her secrets, and thus she withdrew, or they from her, as if direct talk about, say, her dead twin brother or her gay son named after him, were too much for anybody to take. I cannot be her husband. She must know I can't accompany her to Home Depot forever, pour shock into the hot tub, fertilize bougainvillea by the downspout. But does she say she can take care of herself and her own? I would be expecting too much. She puts her arms around me so I will feel the consequence in my body, the consequence of her losing once again. And I hug her back even harder in my attempt to do the impossible, push dark feelings out of her and leave light in their place. Maybe, she thinks, why should he get all the freedom I don't have? Go to grad school, come back home, go off for a fellowship. Why should his happiness depend, spring from, depend upon my disappointment? What kind of logic is that? Do you think I'm gonna die, mom? Is that why you're sad? I wanna say it, but don't. It would be cruel to go down those roads. I suppose her heart wouldn't be so broken if I were headed to Arizona rather than Provincetown. Over the years, our family has twice visited Provincetown and we know what draws people there. We've walked among the queer people on the street, heard them laughing, carousing, seeing the signals pass between them. She's afraid of my living among my kind, especially now that so many young men are dying of AIDS. She's expecting me to die of AIDS. <laughs> my mother. I were studying my mother in a story. If I could step back from all my hot feelings, I could admit she still saw all the parts of me I've obliterated. The boy too anxious to eat his tiny sandwich on pumpernickel, 
the boy cowering before his teenage babysitter after she'd taken off his clothes. My mother must know I can be strong, and if she cannot help trying to beat some of that strength out of me, it's probably not just to keep me close, though that's part of it. She wants me to know that I can't lose my vigilance. She knows how easy it is to slip from one category to the next, health to illness, blind routine to misery. One minute, she was a teenage girl working her finger into a hole in the floor, and the next minute, miles away, her father lifted his shotgun to his head and clicked. I start the car, my eyes floody, burning, tears drip off my chin onto my shirt and shorts. Quite possible she won't be all right. She isn't gonna kill herself, I know that much. She isn't going to drink herself into a stupor. Nothing as extreme as all that, or even as rebellious. Her own killing will be softer. She doesn't believe in spectacular gestures, doesn't believe she deserves them. She does what people do all the time, not making new friends, not allowing herself to be known, eating too much ice cream, no exercise, watching daytime talk shows that don't even capture her interest. Life is pure endurance instead of the hard, hard work of finding interests that refresh and nourish her. I love you, she says. I love you too, I say, very much. And I think it's time we tell each other a joke. Joke, she says, managing the impossible, tearing up while laughing, getting a little too serious, the both of us, don't you think? I'm not as bad as I seem right now. I'm just exhausted. You must know that, don't you? We'll be just fine. You promise? She grimaces now. You could sound a little more enthusiastic. I'll call you after I get to the motel. Don't forget now, she cries, as if I would ever forget. I drive through pines and palmetto scrub, past lit signs taller than skyscrapers, a pink building in the shape of a huge sombrero, a dreamy wide river lined with moss-hung trees, the kind of river about which my father would say, I'd like to buy property there. At a later point, I'll see my mother's rage as her strength, this refusal to regulate her sadness, this no to taming the inner animal of hurt. She must know that this rage eats her alive, but that doesn't mean she doesn't want to soothe it, pet it, loosen its collar, and give it all the biscuits it needs. I deserved better, barks the glorious animal. I should have gotten more. And it runs around and around in circles, looking for a way out of the fence, and it never gives up. Thank you all. Wow. So, um, Deborah, I know that uh, both of our books were many, many years in the making, and I know yours um, started at least back in maybe 2000. And um, yeah, and um, I'm curious about how the book changed from its first passages to its published iteration. What, what changed over that span of years? I think that when I first started writing it, I didn't even know that it was a book. I just was writing episodes. I just was writing scenes. 
Um, and then I realized at a certain point that it needed more of a narrative and, and that there was a chronology, that there was kind of this dual trajectory of my gaining knowledge and, and competence and identity in the world and my decline um, off, offset by one another. Um, and, and then at much later, after I'd been working on the book for a number of years, I decided to add the present day interludes because I really felt that when you're writing about childhood trauma, what it's really about is how that continues to rever reverberate in your life and how everyone's childhoods continue to reverberate in their life. Um, and I felt that by doing that, people would be able to read the book and think about their own childhoods and think about how many times a day those memories come back or those images, are, are those feelings, just the feelings. Great, great. Do you have a question for me? I do have a question for you. I have to say that when I heard you read the first chapter about your mom, it tore the heart out of my body. Um, and just that line, I cannot be her husband. It's just, there's so much in that line. But I wanted to ask you about the way you depict the, your mother throughout the book, because it's so internal, the way that you're able to kind of get into her head very seamlessly and without any like pretension you're able to to get into her interior space well i i think that probably came about because this was a time of separation between us and i think um in the eight months prior to my departure from to provincetown we had become quite close again and i think on intuitive level I mean, I'd moved back home essentially and my mom was having a sort of crisis she as you can tell had left um, she and my father just decided they were going to buy this house in Florida and my father didn't join her and so in she was at this point in her life in which she wanted to remake herself and I think intuitively I knew that I needed to remake myself as well. And I knew that my own, my own remaking had to involve saying no to her. Mm. Um, it, it had to involve a departure. So um, I felt psychologically super close to her during that period. And um, yeah, I think, you know, I've written different versions of my mom in both my nonfiction and fiction all the way back, you know, in six or five previous books. And I think I sort of gave myself permission to write her complexity or her, mm -hmm. her, her real darkness or suffering in this book. Um, and she continues to inhabit the book even when she's not there, which is so, and because it starts with her perhaps, and then there's later, she does come back in later, but you just continue to feel her presence and her presence in you all through the book. Thanks, thanks. Um, I was gonna ask you a question about performance. I was okay. thinking about the fact that your father in so many ways saves himself by, by being a performer. There's, uh -huh. in an early chapter, he's, even though he's an atheist, he's performing as a lay rabbi at the La Crescenta synagogue. Mm -hmm. And then in the next scene, he's at 
Purim and drag, <laughs> and he, he inhabits accents. And I was thinking about performance as a way to distance oneself from emotion, but also a way to connect, um, you know, connect to the recipient or viewer. He was always in character, and he was always looking for an audience. And I think one of the tragedies of his life is he never found a large enough audience who really appreciated him appreciated him. And I think for a long time in the family, I was the audience member who would watch him and laugh at him. Um, he kind of had lost my brothers. I think my mom had seen his shtick a lot. But um, I mean, just in my childhood, aside from dressing up like little Lord Fauntleroy, which he did on multiple occasions, um, and at my 10th birthday party, which is in the book, which did not go so well. Um, but he dressed up like Davy Crockett, he dressed up like an Indian chief. Um, he was in drag at Purim. I think he would have been in drag on other occasions if that had been more socially acceptable. I think there was a lot of androgyny that went into his performances. Um, so yeah, I think he was always in character. And when I knew towards the end of his mental decline that he had really lost it, it was when he lost that sense of being on stage and he didn't realize anymore. There wasn't that like separation between here's the performance like even in the can opening ritual that I read today he knows he's performing on a certain level he believes it and he doesn't believe it and he's also playing to his audience yeah he knows he's he's trying to bring the light to you <laughs> and he knows yeah he knows he has a wrapped a wrapped viewer yes yes absolutely wrapped and completely suggestible to his reality. <laughs> right. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the structure of your book, Paul, because it's, it's both lyric, um, and you talk about town, when you talk about Provincetown as having both a kind of a lyric and a linear component. And I wondered that your, your book also has that, where there is a chronology but it's also large enough to encompass poems and koans and lots of beautiful lyrical passages. So how did you come up with that structure? Well, the original structure was in past tense and it was, it was really linear and it was like nothing I'd written in 10 or 15 years. I mean, my other books have been very much collage based and I thought, what's this? And it, it moved forward and had an engine in it. And um, I thought, oh wow, I, I did something, I did something that other people can do. <laughs> and I was so excited and I put the book aside, it kind of stalled. Um, and I realized after putting it aside that like for this particular project it felt too neat and organized and um, resolved so I spent part of the or mo most of the summer of 2016 back in Provincetown and one thing I was aware of was a sense of like stumbling into a poem as I walked down the street I don't mean a literal poem I mean like the moonlight doing this amazing, amazing thing to the surface of the harbor and how that felt like a different aspect of time. It was outside of chronology. It was outside of the, the, the force of, of, of a linear narrative. And that gave me the idea to just to 
kind of stretch and compress the book to write it in such a way that short sections could be introduced. I mean, mm -hmm. I wanted it to move like in a longitudinal way, mm -hmm. but I also wanted it to move laterally and, and to be in some conversation. And it, and it does, and it totally works. I feel like it totally works. I mean, and I kind of can get it, having been to Provincetown, there's that feeling of like timelessness. Right, right. A sense of just a particular day being um, encased in a bubble mm -hmm. and, and not being subject to the human rules of, of history or sociology. I was going to ask you, Deborah, what did you leave out of the book? I mean, did, whether, what, is that a hard question? I hope it's not invasive. I, I, I'm always interested in, you know, what, especially so invasive, in a memoir Bob. form, like what we choose, like, like the boundaries, the, the constraints that are at work in order to give shape to this material. I think there's probably a whole other book on the cutting room floor. Um, part of what got cut out, which I did wind up publishing as separate pieces, were pieces about the neighbors. And I, I just decided ultimately that the book, even though the book was partly about our family in the community and the way that we didn't fit into the La Crescenta Gentile community was part of what was shaping what was going on inside the family, I decided to kind of tread lightly on those stories about the neighbors. There was an episode where our neighbor kept coming over to try to convert us relentlessly, constantly. Um, and her son, my interactions with her son. Um, and I just wound up leaving a lot of that out and deciding that the book was really more about the family. Great, great. Um, I wanted to ask you, Paul, because so much of the book is about sex and death. And I think I mentioned to you earlier when I first read the book, I read the book twice now. When I first read it, I thought it was mostly about sex. And then reading it during this pandemic, it felt like it was a lot about death. And you talk about sex and death as siblings and as twins. And I just wanted to hear you elaborate on that a little bit and, and that connection. Um, yeah, it's, I, you know, I, I wanted to to bring the sexuality to the foreground in this book because it's so much a part of the life force. It was, I mean, as much a part of the life force as, you know, sunlight and water and music and animals are. And I, you know, it felt for this particular project, it would have been false to, to tame it, tame it out of landscape yeah. of the narrative and um, uh, I sexuality in this book, the expression of sexuality is so much about a desire to connect with others at a time when connection seemed so precarious. And it felt like it was defying darkness, <coughs> and the, the null, the, the silent and um, you know, that experience, that connection that you're talking about between sex and death is just, that was just the, the algebra of those times. I mean, you could not peel one away from the other. And um, I don't think there's a, a passage in the book in which 
No, that. inextricable, inextricable. Yeah. And, the, and the way this young narrator like fights for his sexuality, I just was like applauding the courage of fighting for your sexuality when it's suddenly become associated with death and where there's risk in every encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the irony is that, you know, that young narrator is fighting for his sexuality in a place that, that you know, that comports itself as, as a haven and a place of safety. And it's still, yeah, it's still a matter of urgency. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's Definitely. part of the ongoing drama of, of trying to survive. Mm -hmm. Did you? Do you want to talk about sex in? I always want to talk about sex in every book, <laughs> even when it's not there, Paul. I want to talk about it. Um, I think that sex kind of saved my narrator, and and as on a certain level, it was sexuality that really got her out of her father's orbit, and 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 got her to have a different sense of her body. I mean, and in my book, it was it started out in you know masturbation which was a little bit guilt-ridden. And then it went to um, a, a boy at the drive-in, a beautiful, beautiful Jewish boy in these, like, necking, which if you can still say necking, above, above the neck making out sessions in the drive-in that gave me such an incredible sense of my own power. Um, and when I read your book and you talk about animal love and the and kind of the love of one body for another that's really separate from personhood. I mean, I could barely talk to this boy. We had no common interests. He was very much a teenage boy who cared about cars and I'm not sure what. Um, but I loved his body and his body. Well, the amazing thing about your book is that bodies are always on the page. I think about you know, the body of your father, which is so painstakingly conveyed from moment to moment, gesture to gesture. And I wondered whether that um, was deliberate work or it just happened. It's, um, his body was omnipresence. His body was a looming presence. I mean, and his body would change. He was a shapeshifter because he would get fat and then he would lose weight. And he had these beautiful um, woolen clothes from the East Coast that he loved to wear. Mm. Or then he would be dressed like little Lord Fauntleroy. But so, so his body was always there. But I also, I mean, I feel like we have in common that we write from the body. Mm -hmm. That we know that um, if the writing doesn't hit the reader in the body, and if we're not writing from our bodies, then there's something that's not authentic about it. I, I feel my body in every passage I write. And I know that... Other people have said, wow, this book is so visceral, it's a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But that, yeah, there, there's, it's where it starts. It's so clear that that's, it's, the body is at the origin of, of each passage, each section of the book. What I wanted to ask you, because um, we're living through this pandemic now, about the way that AIDS pandemic comes back through this pandemic to people who lived through it? Um, do you think that people have PTSD? Do you have flashbacks? Is it the same? Is it different? How does it feel? I think for those of us who lived through those, you know, the, the, the toughest years, it's, I, mean, I, I don't think, I don't think that psychic dread 
ever went away, honestly. Um, so in some ways, I think the intensification of these times feels, feels really familiar. I mean, I, I've known all my, I've, I, I feel like I've been in survival mode my entire life, um, just in, in, in terms of my own psychology. And um, it's, it's hard not to draw, to, to make a conversation or draw parallels or think about how one pandemic was different from the others. I mean, I think what feels different about this one, honestly, is that um, we can't say, oh, that happens to people out there or over there, mm -hmm. you know, and there isn't that awful shame and stigma that people who, um, people who suffered with AIDS and HIV had, had, to, had to live with on an everyday basis. So, mm. yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to put out this book at this moment because I think some of the issues in this book might be more comprehensible to a reader who wasn't familiar with or wasn't close to anyone who had lived alongside in the midst of the other pandemic. Yeah, and I think that everyone can kind of relate now to that sense that human contact carries risk and that right. we crave for that, we crave that human contact. I mean, I right. miss being able to hug my friends and then to think that there's danger in doing that. It's, it's very confusing. I mean, we're a social species. We need to be able to touch right. each other. Yeah, and what, yeah, what does it mean to, to, to live with the possibility that we could be contagious and not know it? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, what, is it, what does it mean in terms of how we understand our bodies and how we connect to others? It feels, all of that feels so profound and unsettling to me. And I, and I feel like my childhood kind of prepared me for this pandemic, too, because my father always behaved as if I were going to die, as if there were something that was going to kill me. Um, and I totally internalized that. And I think we both had childhoods marked by strange symptoms and maladies and worry around our bodies. Yeah, the, the, pro that, the cloud of illness was always in the atmosphere and it was like used in a transactional way too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. If you do this, this could happen. If you do this, this could happen and then it could hurt me, etc. So yeah, the, that, the logic of all that was just graded into our, our psyches. Yes, and in my family, like the way you could really get my mother's attention was not through emotions. She would turn mm -hmm. away from emotions, but if you had a good symptom, and if it was better than your brother's symptom or more dramatic than your father's symptom, right. then you would get some attention. <laughs> exactly. But one thing I want to say, your book is so funny, and I, I, I think it's important to, to, to say that because it's, you know, on the surface quite dark, but it's delivered. It, its delivery is often really hilarious or it's situated in this, you know, uncomfortable tone where it's simultaneously hilarious and simultaneously, oh my God. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you wanted to talk about humor in the book. That's one thing I want to claim about your book because, you know, I, I started watching 
some John Cassavetes movies the other night, and I was mm-hmm. thinking about the operatic dramas at the center of them and how they, you know, they're simultaneously like devastating, but they're also like full of the absurdity of human behavior. And it's, it, it's impossible not to laugh at some of the darkest stuff. And it was, and it, some of it was funny while it was happening and was recognized as funny while it was happening. And then it could turn on a dime. I mean, my right. father's moods could turn on a dime and it could turn on a dime. But um, when I was writing the book, I thought a lot about King Lear and how funny those, I mean, those tragic final scenes on the heath with King Lear and the fool, they're so awful. They're so devastating. He's so destroyed. And there are moments that are just really funny. Yeah. Um, and I kept thinking about that, that book when I was writing about my dad's yeah. kind of final decline. Great. Um, oh, are we getting? No. I was trying to decide whose question was whose at the moment. No, Christine is sending us. She says we'll go until 7.20 and then we'll open it up to questions. Okay. Um, do you have a question for me? I have a question have for okay. you. I really want to talk about the way you jump forward at the, towards the very end of the book. You jump into 2018 mm-hmm. uh, and you pull it off and it's pretty incredible. But I wondered why you decided to do that. I know if I didn't do that, the book would have just unraveled. And hmm. I, the book refused a kind of stopping point at least in the years that go from 1991 to 94. And I was so resistant to tying everything up, to making connections in terms of image or anything. I just wanted it to, I really wanted it to unravel. But I don't think it would have, it wouldn't have been a rigorous ending. And I had the gut sense that I needed to convey the present. I, I wanted the book formally to suggest that this difficulty is carried on into the everyday, even though in many ways the everyday is okay, but, mm-hmm. but there's you know, the residue of you know, uncertainty, fear, um, that um, are almost hard to summarize. And it just happened that, um, you know, I went to my doctor in 2018 and um, he said, you know, I think you should really go on PrEP now, which is the medication that people take to prevent HIV. And, you know, I, I, I was a little suspicious and then a couple days later I said, yes. And I realized that my, I never had a pact with the future before. Mm. I'd mm. always assumed that, you know, like tomorrow wasn't going to be there for me. Mm. And um, so I, I, I wanted that the book not to end on a hopeful note, but I, I wanted, I, I wanted that ongoing story to shift a bit. I mean, it is sort of hopeful. I mean, I think, I think the final, that final scene, that return to the beginning has hope stirred in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, well, I think I get this sense from the end that, that, that with PrEP, 
sex is safer, but sex will never be totally safe. And you don't want, you don't want sex to be totally safe. You don't want life to be totally safe. That's not the nature of life. There's always risk hanging over. And whether it's just like the mortality that we're all thinking about now with the pandemic or thinking about your own aging. I mean, death is always in the picture with, with sex as safe as one can make it, right? Right, right, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about that 2018 section and to think about it through the, the lens of the present, <laughs> which has turned everyone into a monk, unless. <laughs> <laughs> Next book, I guess. <laughs> Thing is Brother safe. Paul's story is of safe. 2020 and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to ask you? Oh, what about your writing right now? Have you been able to write I'm, in the last couple of months? I am really not able to write very well. I've been writing a little bit about belief and delusion, which I'm not sure how that's going to shape up. But I... I read a little piece the other day about just what I believe during a pandemic and how it's affecting my whole belief system because I'm getting to be more and more of, of um, like, like going back to OCD rituals and thinking, well, if I have to wash the groceries, do I have to also wear the right pair of socks? Mm -hmm. what, that it becomes irrational when there's so much that's unknown. The irrationality just seeps in. Um, so I've been writing a little bit about that, but I'm finding it a little hard to focus. How about you? I'm finding it a little hard to focus, but I know that I, I have a feeling I'd be able to bear these days, this, this weird sense of openness, um, if I had a project to engage me. So um, I've been writing a book about my father for the past five years, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find my way back it back into it in a way that isn't um, that isn't forced. So, I would love yeah. to read a book about your father. Thanks. Yeah, I think you'd it, you'd be the ideal reader for it. <laughs> that there are some similarities between our fathers. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in the large sense. Mm -hmm. Looks like Christine is um, inviting questions okay. from. I am. I am, and we've got one uh, here. The question is, how long did it take to write your books? Paul, you made reference earlier. Deborah's book took quite a while. Is that right, Deborah? I think it took my whole life. I, I have to say, I think it took my whole life, not to be glib. But um, yeah, it took a very long time. And I think I was writing some of, I mean, even as a child, I was always keeping a journal and writing. I was the kid off to the side in the playground, afraid that the balls would hit me in the head and kill me writing the story of what the other kids were doing. That's funny. Paul, how about you? You've got six other books, right? Oh, five. This is book six. Okay. But um, the first version of this book I started was back in 1998, believe it or not. And it was, um, it was a novel. And um, I think I wrote about, say, 75 to 100 pages. And... Um, it just, it felt a little too sweet. And I think it was a little too close to those particular years for me to, to find a way to inhabit. I mean, there are plenty 
plenty of sections of this book. You wouldn't know from what I read, there are plenty of sections of this book that are like meant to be funny and playful. And um, I think that particular version of the book was just way too much on that side. And it just, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, didn't have that yin yang kind of feel. So um, I put it aside and then back, um, I, I tried maybe two other versions and this particular version began in, in 2015. I started it um, just weeks after my father had died. I couldn't write directly about my father, but I could use another vehicle to think like, or to at least to inhabit that emotion. and. As I started writing the book, it was just like so clear that those years from the early 90s were, were really present in my imagination. So, yeah, it just it, a number of things had to line up in order for me to write the book. Paul, I was thinking about uh, Provincetown and just geographically where it sits. Is it the most eastward, easterly part of the United States or? It, you know, it feels like it. I'm not sure if that's factually true. I mean, Maine might extend further out in, into the ocean, but when you're in Provincetown, it's, you know, it's, it's a two-hour drive from Boston. It's, you know, the bay is fairly wide, so it feels about as far out as you can go. Okay, we have a question here from Nomi. Nomi's going to answer a question, or uh, uh, ask a question for us. I'll unmute. Yeah, I, I have no answers today. I, d I have questions. <laughs> hi, Nomi. So, hi, how are you? Good. First, I want to say that I loved both your excerpts. I have read Deborah's book, and, um, and I think now I'm going to read Paul's book. And um, I, I, I want to say, I do have a question, but I want to say that I, hearing Deborah, hearing that passage about the tasteless, odorless assassin, oh my God, that, and I read the book a while ago and it has a whole different meaning now. It's like, mm -hmm. I, could look, I could look at it from afar before and now I'm like, oh my God, totally in every grocery I bring in the house, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then Paul also, a number of different passages and also just the way you express yourself now of just talking about the algebra of those times and the logic braided into your psyche. And I'm thinking, why can't I talk like that? Um, so I just, you know, I enjoyed this and I've loved the conversation between the two, two of you and the questions you've asked each other. This, this has just been a delicious hour or break or whatever. And so finally, my question, my question is, uh, I know from Deborah's book that there's a lot of really intimate, revealing, stuff on the page and it sounds Paul like you have some or a lot of that as well and so my question is how much courage did it take to let this work go out the door and knowing that it's in permanent ink not on the internet which is permanent too I guess but uh and that it will be there and that people will lay their eyes on it well for me I mean I think as soon as I set something down 
in sentences and in, in the form of language, it doesn't exactly feel like me anymore. I mean, mm. both Deborah and I have talked about our I as <laughs> a narrator or a speaker. And it's like, as soon as you set it down, you're, you're saying goodbye to yourself. And even though you're trying to pay fidelity to your own emotions and your own memory and experience, it, it, I literally feel it separate from me. So, you know, I think when I'm writing this work or reading from it, my hope is that the reader isn't looking at me, but I'm thinking about that I as a skin that the reader can step into and that the reader's bringing her own, her own concerns and wanting and loss and all of that into the experience. So it's kind of, I, I think of it as, I'm, I'm making a proxy experience for the reader and it's like something that you can co-create. And, and what I have found is that um, people who have read my book will start confessing to me all sorts of personal secrets about their lives. So it's, it is, it's like a gateway drug. It opens <laughs> everyone up to be able to talk about their, I mean, everybody's got weird bodily stuff. Everybody's got weird psychological stuff. Um, I, I, I didn't take courage. I mean, maybe it took madness. Maybe I didn't think about, really think about how it would feel. Um, some of the interviews, like the radio interviews have been a little weird where they just talk about the events of the book as if it's not this made object, um, as if it's not a work of literature, as if there is no separation between me and that narrator on the page. Um, but it's, it's actually been pretty freeing. Um, Deborah, along those lines, I know that this is your second book and in this book, you got a lot more personal. So like, when do you know you're done? When do you know you're done with, with the book? Yeah. Um, I think when you've exhausted yourself, I mean, I think that, that I had a, I had a trajectory for the book that it's really coming of age and it took me from basically like age four through the age of 17. So I knew that once I got Emily and once I began to separate from my father's influence, that was where the book would end. Um, and then there are these, these contemporary day episodes when in a sense it, it doesn't ever end. It's, my, my current life is still there. Right, but the ink on the page, like Nomi was saying, you know, is permanent. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Scary. Um, I don't know. At a, at a certain point, I think you kind of get fatigue and you just feel like it's, it needs to be done. It needs to be done. You need to move on. Yeah. I think it helps for me to think of my work as part of an ongoing project. So mm -hmm. like this particular book is how I see this experience mm -hmm. at this moment. and. I, I need to say to myself that I could write another version of this story in 20 years and have a whole new window into it, right. depending upon what was happening in the world then. Yeah, what it's could really be like happening. any artist, whether it's a painting or a book or a play or a movie or whatever you're working on, at some point, you got to go on to the next project. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, we've got someone else who would like to uh, have a uh, has a question. Joyce Koff. Joyce. Where are you? Hi, Debbie. Hi, Joyce. 
Um, I have something to say that really got to me in your book when okay. your father kept calling his mother on the phone mm -hmm. and, and, there, and it was disconnected. It, it was such a disconnect that I felt in the pit of my stomach. Yeah. So that, that really sent me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what Joyce is talking about, so after my father's mother died, which is when he really started to lose it mentally, he kept calling her phone number, which had been disconnected. And in those days, there would be a tape recording saying, you've reached a disconnected number. And then he would kind of throw the receiver down um, and he couldn't quite believe it. He kept trying to convince himself that she was dead. And he would also go to our front window in the middle of the night and talk to her in her grave, which I think might have been even more disturbing to me than, than the phone calls. But, but every time he would pick up the phone like that, then I would have to see that her house was no longer, that her house, that her things were no longer in her house, that she was gone. Yeah, it was a total emptiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank book. you, Jordan. Thank you. Very brave book. And it was so understandable how you felt death and because we all that we carry that with us all of our lives. And it was very powerful. Thank you. Well, this has been really amazing, you guys, this hour with everybody. And uh, as you know, we've got Paula Zicke's book later and his other five books available at Skylight Books. And we also have Deborah Lott's book available, Don't Go Crazy Without Me. And uh, please head over to our website, skylightbooks.com. We will be open very soon, at least I sure hope so, just trying to keep everybody safe. Uh, and please uh, go to our website again, check our other virtual events out. We've got a lot of stuff coming up. Paul and uh, Deborah can't thank you enough. Thank you. Go thank ahead you, and uh, say goodbye to everyone. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Skylight. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you, Skylight. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.